The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome to Scissoring Isn't a Thing. As always, I am Darren Karp, and I am here with sexy Liz Cully today. Oh. Liz, you look good. I feel like our relationship is just progressing at like unnatural speeds <laughs> recently, and I'm here for it. So thank you, Darren. I appreciate And you're wearing one of my favorite shirts that you own. I love that I- shirt. I did do that. Now, before I introduce our guest for, for the top of this show, I will say I, I, I thought about what I was going to wear because I was mm-hmm. like, normally I wear a T-shirt. I'm done filming. I'll take my makeup off for the day, you know. But then I was like, we kind of have a politician coming mm-hmm. on. And then we got Liz. So I wanted to look the part. Uh, without further ado, though, let me please introduce my good friend, actually, his brother. We met through his brother, uh, who was my very best friend with the same namesake as me. But I wanted to introduce the world to Brandon Goldberg. And he is running for Atlanta's city council, which, you know, if you've never heard of Atlanta, uh, where have you been? And yeah, there's no political nightmares happening in Atlanta, right, Brandon? I mean, you're kind of there's no there's no weird politics or anything happening in Georgia, right? Like status quo there. Well, let me start with a nice Atlanta greeting. Hey, y'all. Nice yeah. to see you. <laughs> and uh, to your comment, uh, what we've been saying down here, Atlanta influences everything. It really does. And I never thought like and not in a bad way. It's just I think when you think of cities, you think of New York and you think of, you know, D.C. for politics and you think of Los Angeles. But now I feel like Atlanta is sort of usurping the United States in a lot of ways. Do you feel that way too, just being down there? Oh, well, certainly. And if you look at the way the U.S. Senate and now the entire American government functions, it's all thanks to the fine people of Georgia that were on the track that we're on. So yes, and uh, you asked about politics here. So we are now a blue state with a bright red state legislature, and that is playing out exactly how you'd think it would turn out. So uh, it's uh, it's been interesting down here. What do, what is that mean? Because to me it sounds because to me it just sounds like a, a purple clusterfuck. But it does. Uh, Brandon, what does accurate. that mean? Yeah, right. Or what is it yes. like down there? So what that means is on the statewide <laughs> level, we elected Joe Biden. We elected right. Senator Ossoff, Senator Warnock. I was actually on a lunch call with a few people and Senator Ossoff today. So you all are my tea time. He was my lunch. That's where I prioritize you all. By the way, <laughs> thank uh, you. But the uh, the red legislature is the Republicans control our state house and our governor is a Republican. So what's going to happen is this fall with the new census information, they're going to have total control over redrawing districts for not only the state legislature, but for Congress. So some of our Democratic incumbents could be challenged. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, is one of our uh, Republican of officials. Yeah, she's uh, she'll be just fine. And uh, <laughs> they're going to make sure to. She's already in a protected district, but they're going to shore up their team. And uh, there's not much that Democrats can do institutionally to stop them other than showing the voters exactly what's going on and all the shenanigans. There'll be a racial component to it because, of course, uh, racial minorities tend to vote for Democrats. You're going to see some clustering of districts that may be challengeable in court. But uh, but that's what it means. We're a blue state with a red legislature. Well, let's let's before we get into and I want to talk about you personally, but just so we're kind of on the same page, because I mean, I'd like to consider myself kind of an involved person in politics. I feel like I know at least kind of peripherally like what's going on, but I don't vote in local elections. Shockingly, Um, I'm not registered. I'm not registered in any party. I obviously don't live in Georgia. So uh, if I did, I would vote for you, of course, in some sort of way. But um, because I don't do that, how I do feel like like city council, local things, mayors, these things are actually the people that are really changing 
the state's policies uh, for better or for worse. So as a city council member, what would that be? What's your hierarchy and what do you kind of handle just for people who might not know, including myself? Yeah, the things that we work on is what impacts people on a daily basis. And certainly what the president does, what Congress does can impact someone on a daily basis. But we're talking about housing issues, transportation issues. Uh, our races are nonpartisan, so it's not Democrats versus Republicans. So when I talk to people who disagree with me, I say, when it comes to fixing a pothole, no one cares what party you're in. But fair, it's dealing fair. with local health issues. Ethics in government is a, is a big to do. And that's very much dealt with on a local level. So if I can come out of this conversation saying one thing, please, please vote in your local elections. Wherever I you do. Live. But let me tell you, Brandon, the city of Los Angeles, I have now lived in West Hollywood and now I live in Los Angeles. And it is so interesting. And I literally live three blocks from where I used to live. And the difference is insane. Stark. And it's like, even small things like when your car gets towed, praise Jesus or Tupac, as I like to say, you want your car being towed in West Hollywood because one, it's like a way cheaper situation. And two, it almost feels like you're in a small town. And it's so interesting. The streets are better. Like we have better health care, even three blocks away. But yeah, the local elections are so important, especially, you know, as you get older and you start to have children and you want your kids to go to school, like all yeah. those things you don't really think about when you're, you know, maybe like a teenager and you're young and you're just kind of thinking it's the president or, you know what I mean? That's the only thing that you have any power in. You're, you're really right. It is these local elections that really affect your day-to-day -day life, which are so important. But let's get into a little bit about you, Brandon, because I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but maybe it's just because I've spent a long weekend in many gay bars in Austin, Texas with you at your brother's uh, 30th birthday <laughs> that you and I actually uh, got to know each other. We but, were roommates uh, in that hotel. Come we on. were roommates in that hotel. I did live with my boys. I uh, love so I got, it. But uh, is it safe to say that you're uh, an openly gay candidate? Is, is gay the right term for you or how do you kind of... Uh, describe yourself. Yep. No, that's absolutely right. Cisgender. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I campaign as an openly gay man. I'm uh, very involved in the gay community here, uh, former president of our LGBT attorney association in the state and, and numerous other groups. So it's, I wouldn't say that it defines me that I'm the quote unquote gay candidate, but someone's got to speak for those values, those issues. There's only one current member of city council who's a part of the community. He's bisexual, but he's running for mayor. So he's not going to be on council no matter what happens in the mayor's wow. race. And so we we need to make sure there's that kind of representation. And, and I'm running citywide. I'm not running for a district seat. So ha not only having that representation, but having it speak for the whole city would be very impactful. You know, Darren and I had a guest on the show, a comedian by the name of Sam Jay. And we talked about how Atlanta was a place that she really like came out in and she felt kind of the most she herself. Thrived. Yeah, really yeah. thrived. Exactly. And there is a really thriving LGBTQ plus community in the South. And in particular, I would say the Mecca of that is Atlanta. Would you agree? I would. And there were some statistics going back a few years that said we had a uh, statistically more dense uh, LGBT population than San Francisco. Uh, I don't know if that holds, but, uh, but I can, I'm from there. She's I, from San Fran. So do maybe, you know what? Uh, no, I actually think that, to be honest with you, I think that that is maybe totally correct, just in the sense that a lot of LGBTQ plus 
people left the city of San Francisco and are now in Oakland or they went to LA or New York, Darren or Austin, like where you guys apparently were roommates. I think, um, I think a lot of people, you know, tech has kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, but I think it's the honest term really whitewashed San Francisco, um, of a lot of culture. And so that makes sense. I mean, before the pandemic, were you going out to the gay bars? Like talk to us about like, what's a night out for Brandon Goldberg in Atlanta? Yeah. Yeah, Well, it worked out nicely that uh, I started my campaign in the middle of the pandemic. So I didn't have to really change my lifestyle by that point (laughs) because I was staying at home anyway. I wasn't right. what dating apps weren't of much use during a global pandemic of effort proportions. So I was uh, CDC compliant, Dr. Fauci approved during the pandemic. <laughs> but so sure, before the pandemic, before I was a, a candidate, I, I would go out. I've begun going out again. You know, I need to meet my constituents, my future voters. And if that happens to be at a, an LGBT establishment on the weekend, I'm just going to where the voters are, you know, Liz, and, uh, and I have to meet them there. And who isn't going at a drag brunch in Atlanta? Those are the voters, I think. Those are those are absolutely the voters. Are you ever worried about being in the public? Like, can you get drunk in public anymore if you want to be an elected official? Like, mm. what's the, you know, like we often talk about sometimes you get so famous, you can't have road rage, right? Or you can't do one yeah. bad thing. You always got to tip well, like. What's the pressure of kind of running in this a serious position in a very serious city on, on serious topics, but also trying to let loose and have fun? Right. And I think that's right. It's all moderation. So I can't be blacked out in a bar. I take a lot of cues from friends of mine who are elected officials, who are young professionals, some of whom are LGBT and in the state legislature, for example. And so we might go out to the same establishment together. And they already being in office, I've had the experience of kind of watching how they conducted themselves. Obviously, I have just my own logic as to what to do in these situations, but it's it's moderation. You need to enjoy your life, live a life, right? We're regular people, which is a yeah. weird thing for me to say from this perspective, because I know I'm a regular person. But to go out, but not to make a scene. I don't want to be on the news for the wrong reason. People say there's no such thing as bad news, but there is such a thing as bad news. And it's being unconscious on the floor of a bar. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you from Atlanta or where are you from? I'm originally from New Jersey. I'm a Jersey boy. I came down here for school. I attended law school at Emory. Uh, Atlanta is a, a great place. It's definitely a destination city for a lot of folks from the north. And uh, I highly recommend. Well, Liz, you have uh, you may have had some uh, experiences down here. I hope you come back and we can have. Oh, one. she did. She did. She doesn't want it. She wants to get you elected. So she's not going to talk about those yeah. experiences. But real uh, talk. yeah, <laughs> real talk. But, I'm curious for you, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens locally that I'm not aware of. For example, when Andy in New York City, where I live now, Andy actually was a very uh, integral part. I met Governor Cuomo through because he was trying to essentially, you know, um, surrogacy was actually illegal in New York. And I did not know that. And I and I literally like, you know, you think of New York City, you think of progressive, certainly a very blue city, certainly gay people are abound, Jewish people are abound here. But there's a lot of these archaic rules that I don't know. For Atlanta specifically, are there certain LGBTQ issues that you're tackling head on that you want to see reversed? Or what 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 are those issues like that you could maybe uh, elaborate on for us? Yeah. So, well, the first one that I would talk about is the AIDS epidemic in Atlanta. And I use the word epidemic literally. And there are some zip codes here where the infection rate is eight times the national average. We're on par. Really? With yeah. We're on par with third world countries down here. Uh, I saw a statistic recently that for black men between the ages of 35 and 44, it's the number one cause of death in Georgia. Wait, uh, why? I'm, I'm, I'm floored by this. 
Well, as a, as a candidate, I could say a lack of leadership uh, for one uh, at both the city and, and county level. Uh, we have some great organizations in town that combat this, that, that work to educate the public, uh, not just prep, but just all kinds of issues. And then people who are infected, making sure that they have access to the equal life that they should have in terms of uh, job prospects, medication and all that. But I don't see a lot of support coming from the government. The county mm-hmm. added some nurses to staff which is, listen, any step in the right direction is a step in the right direction, but it is bad in Atlanta. Do you think culturally in Atlanta, there's also perhaps that can influence it as well, just in the sense that I know us like Northern folk and Western folk or whatever we call ourselves these days, kind of, and it might be wrong, but have the perception that Atlanta can be because it's in the South, maybe a little bit more religious. You know, we don't really have like the Bible belt in New York city or in Los Angeles and some places in California. Absolutely. For sure. Contraception too, like that. I I just think also like being gay, I think can be, I think there is a lot of closeted behavior and when it makes it unsafe. Yeah. And when you're engaging in gay sex that in your mind is wrong, you don't like take the time to use a condom. You don't take the time to educate yourself because it's like that makes it all too real. And then maybe they won't seek out help also to these services to get the right med- medication or utilize, you know, the opportunities that I'm sure you will provide more of to get a job and all of those things. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's like, do you think that the social, is there a social stigma yeah, so, yeah. Maybe about it? Yeah. I, I think there certainly would be some of that. Uh, Atlanta is much more of a progressive city despite being in the South. So sure. I don't know that you see so much of those deep South, stereotypes in terms of religiosity. There's certainly here, of course, because just outside the city and even in parts of it, you have very traditional conservative uh, religious groups and and churches. Of course, there's a church in every corner in Atlanta, but for a lot of religious institutions, including my synagogue, which is a a very observant synagogue, it's still very progressive. And so I, I think you're right that that's going on, but I don't think that that's the cause necessarily or the reason why it's getting worse and worse and worse. I think we're not seeing the kind of services and education that you might get in New York City. Yeah. How has being Jewish also affected like or has it affected your campaigning in a place that's predominantly quite Christian? So I've served on uh, the steering committee of an organization called the Atlanta Black Jewish Coalition. And so there is a tradition in Atlanta throughout the country, but especially in Atlanta, of the Jewish and black communities working together. There's iconic pictures of Martin Luther King marching with rabbis arm in arm. We just elected a black senator and a Jewish senator. So that coalition, that idea of these communities working together is historic. It goes back to um, even before the Holocaust. So when Jewish professors who were refugees from Europe came to the United States, they couldn't get jobs at universities because they were Jewish. It was the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities that gave those Jewish professors jobs. And so this uh, alliance between the two communities goes way back. And and I'm certainly having been a part of that for many years, working into that, because these are folks that I have worked with on all kinds of issues across years and and just continuing those discussions in this new uh, role. It's interesting, at least, you know, I'm 33 and I've I've been paying a I've been paying attention to politics, I would say, for maybe half of my life, I would say, like in college, I kind of got more into it. And and again, I really just pay attention a lot to like bigger tent issues as opposed to local. And I've never lived in Georgia, but 
It seems to me over the past maybe 10 years or so that there's been this shift of like previously, you know, you kind of wanted the candidate to like be mainstream. You know, you didn't want them to be. We never had a Jewish president, for example. You know, mm -hmm. you, you wanted them to kind of be like you know, wife with two kids and growing up in the suburbs and, you know, made their way in these kind of like, just you're kind of everyday American. Now I feel like in politics, people are really embracing their, I'm a Jew, I'm a gay, I'm a this, I'm a refugee, I'm a that. Like how much of that is an accurate perception that I've had? And then for you to be an openly gay and Jewish man in Atlanta, how much do you really kind of narrow, like hammer that identity home with a lot of people? I think you're absolutely right. There's an excitement because it's, it's breaking through barriers to be someone in that position, to elect someone who has a, a demographic that's new. It's, it's a reminder of how far we've come as a country from, from way back in the day. I mean, to, to run for office as a gay Jew is sort of crazy. If you go back Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> right. That's unbelievable. And, you know, as much as I say Atlanta's progressive, it is still in Georgia. It is sure. still uh, a southern city. And so, uh, listen, I'm going to say I'll win. But regardless of what happens to run a successful campaign uh, with my demographics is, is, is what makes me feel great. It's just very rewarding. And to know that different types of demographics are empowering people in all races all across the country. It's just it's just nice to see. What's a fun fact or something that you might not get asked by other Ooh. media press Ooh. news outlets that you talk to, but that you could share with our audience on scissoring isn't a thing? Yeah. Like, what's your favorite movie that, you know, we were going to hate that you probably say, like when I tell people that I've never seen Hocus Pocus or Legally Blonde, I get death threats from this, Brandon. So I need what's your weird thing about about or yourself like that, that you, can you share? secretly love Temptation Island, which happens to be the oh best God, television Liz, show on, we know, we'll let it go, on television. <laughs> you are going to throw me off this call and you will certainly have no more viewers after I say this. You better watch Drag Race, otherwise you're oh, out. Oh, Lala restapling bags to, to herself and selling that. That's Atlanta. Yes. But she was Miss Congeniality, so that's also Atlanta. I called that, by the way. Liz got me into that she show. She really I did. That. Honestly, Darren really, Before and I wasn't. No. She did. She called it. So anyway, I like Nickelback. Okay, call over. Um, oh we, can re we, can, we can find another <laughs> guest for this Brandon. podcast, right? Brandon, do you want to get elected? Don't be saying that. I mean, I know we're all four individuals here, but this is something that I don't think anyone needed to know Wait, about. Isn't you. Nickelback the like, can you take me? That's right. Yes, no, that's correct. That's right. The band that everyone makes fun so of. So you like actively yeah. get in your car and you turn, uh -huh. like you go to Spotify and you turn on Nickelback. Oh, I just play it at home when I'm alone. I don't have to be in the car. Uh -huh. I'll just play it in my home. Absolutely. Okay, well, oh, tell everyone oh. where they can follow you and find you, Brandon. For the, for the three people who are left. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry you came on and now we're getting less votes than you would have, but that's on you, buddy. Yeah, well, I was honest. That True. I'm going to lose. An True. honest <laughs> candidate. That's right. But yeah, where can everyone follow you? Well, my website, BrandonCoreyGoldberg.com. Uh, Corey spelled C-O-R-Y. And you can find me Facebook, Twitter, uh, everywhere, LinkedIn. I'm on all, on all the social media. Just search for me. Send me an email, Brandon at BrandonCoreyGoldberg.com. That's my email. I will happily respond. And uh, yeah. Are you on TikTok? I am not on TikTok. Okay, good. Whew. Okay, good. I'm like, I'm 35 and I'm 34 years too old to be on TikTok. Yeah, 
Wait, That's but you know what would be kind of awesome is if you did do TikTok, but like with the green screen with like, and you broke down Nickelback, like music oh videos. God. Yes. Or like Just, why we should love it again. Like your Brandon's reasoning. Like it's like, I'm fighting for the AIDS epidemic. I'm trying to get people, you know, affordable housing, but also Nickelback sales. I mean, this yeah. is something, I don't know why it's not on your website, Brandon. That's just Well, my ridiculous. first promise is to organize concerts with him on an annual basis in the city. It's not more regular. <laughs> This is why you guys should all vote for him. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on Scissorings and a Thing. We absolutely think you will win. You absolutely deserve to win. Um, and then come back on later in the year and let us know kind of how it went, the, the run of everything, because we would love to hear the, the status of it. Right, Liz? I mean, I want to actually no. Liz is done now with the Nickelback. No, I'm here for it. (laughs) And uh, for all the listeners, stay tuned for the second half of Scissoring isn't a thing because it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a doozy and we'll play some Nickelback (laughs) in the meantime. But thank you so much, Brandon. Good luck with your race. Thanks, y'all. Talk to you soon. Today is an exciting day. Darren and I have a very exciting guest. We have Cameron Esposito, who if you guys are living on or under a rock, um, where the you fuck prob- have you been? Where have you been? But Cameron is a Los Angeles based stand up comic actor and writer. You probably listen to Query, uh, Cameron's podcast, which has probably the best talent on the planet. Agreed. On. We definitely both listen to it. Except for today, where we have the best talent on. Fair, fair, fair. See what I did there? I just. Yeah, yeah that was I good. Oh, that was I good. Know. Okay, hold on. I'm Please almost done, Darren. <laughs> Cameron is the uh, co creator and co star of Take My Wife, which garnered rave reviews from the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Vulture, and IndieWire, small publications. Casual. And it's available on Stars, which I love Stars. So there you go. Your most recent special was Rape Jokes, and it raised over $100,000 for Rain. Cameron's first book, Save Yourself, is available everywhere you buy books. Hopefully you guys read. Cameron, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. And I always love a full bio. You know what I mean? To hit all the corners. We had to trim yours down. You're yeah. so accomplished. We literally had to trim I had out to like trim five it. paragraphs. Hopefully I got them the number one stunners in there. So Cameron, we start every podcast asking people how they identify. Usually uh, it's with their pronouns, sexuality. Would you mind answering that question for us in the audience? No, I don't mind, but I've, I have no idea. Isn't I that, love that. Uh, interesting? But it is true. So in my, you know, we're on a Zoomy thing. My pronouns in the box are she and they. I think maybe gender fluid is what's going on. I'm not totally sure. And I also use words like queer. I also use words like lesbian. I also use words like gay. I also identify as a woman. Sometimes I don't identify as a woman. So it's a very interesting thing because I feel like there was like a moment when all the queers got together and decided how to answer this question. (laughs) And I wasn't there. You were on vacation. I wasn't at that thing. And also I think for me, like, because I have some gender fuckage stuff going on. When I was a little kid to now, people mm-hmm. don't know what I am. A lot of times people can't place what's going on with me in terms of gender and sexuality. That still happens, but it happened when I was a little kid too. So sometimes I feel like when I get this question, it's like, I know it's respectful and inclusive, but it puts me into a place of like, help. Like, I don't, yeah. like, I feel like a little kid that is trying to go into the locker room before swim practice. And somebody's like, I think you mean the boys locker room. And I'm like, I don't care. I just 
want to get pee into the water. And you're right. like, I've really Murder been working person. on this yeah. butterfly. How I do actually I- really, I really appreciate that honesty because sometimes with Liz and I, you know, I'm an out lesbian woman. Uh, Liz identifies as bisexual, and even us, like, we get it wrong or we switch things all the time. Like we'll say gay. Sometimes Liz will say lesbian. Like if someone's like, Oh, Liz, you're a lesbian because she's married to a woman. She'll be like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like, so I do think that there's kind of this sliding scale of people on the daily. Have you ever gotten offended if someone says the wrong thing? Like if someone said he to you, would you be like, no, not at all. Or are you kind of like loose with everything? So it's intentionality yeah. that okay. I think matters to me. Like well, number one, intentionality, that would that would lead to like offense. Like if somebody's trying to hurt your feelings right. or be a right. shithead, we all yeah. know how to identify that. Yes. I think that's actually not as confusing as sometimes we pretend it is. So there's like somebody that is deliberately trying to cause offense. Then there's this other thing, which is like emotional burden slash microaggression stuff. And that's not necessarily causing offense, but like I'll give you an example going to take my car into the shop and they're like, okay, sir, you're next. And I'm like, oh, am I in danger? Because this person might figure out that I like have breasts and what are they going to do when they figure that out? Like, will they treat me badly because they're embarrassed? Will they Mm. say something mean to me? You know, will they not notice (laughs) and then expect me to have any knowledge at all of cars? You know, so I just think there's like, there's a lot of different, you know, there's like a fence and then there's like fear, you know, I think it's scary sometimes to be somebody who's not, not, I think it's scary sometimes it is scary to be somebody who's sort of unplaceable because culture actually really doesn't like that. You know, we really want like to get what's going on with other people. And that's like how we feel the safest. So I think if you're somebody who like I am, does you know, not everybody knows what's going on. I think sometimes I can feel in danger in the world. You mentioned earlier that you kind of felt that as a little kid, like you've always mm-hmm. kind of felt like maybe other people didn't know quite where to place you. Mm-hmm. When did you really figure out like, okay, I'm going to either have to kind of change myself so that other people are comfortable or maybe I'm not going to change myself because fuck these people. Like, did you ever have that moment growing up? That's such a good question. You know, I think that it's really hard and especially as kids to imagine that other people are having a different experience than you're having. So I actually thought like we all felt this way. Like I was like, oh, everybody is having such a hard time. (laughs) And then um, writing my book, Save Yourself, like, I'm not trying to do a book plug. It just is when this please, actually happened. Please do I, the book. That's the whole yeah, point. I, uh, do the book hello. plug. We all need to save I, ourselves here. <laughs> but I, but one thing that I started doing was, you know, like, so I was writing about my childhood. And as a part of that, I was looking at photos of myself as a little kid. And when I was looking at photos of myself as a little kid, I think it was like one of the first times that I identified that maybe just I had been a little bit different as a little kid. Cause I just think like, I know people might've even treated me like I was a little bit different, but I really thought that's kind of like that. We all wanted to try out for the boy parts in the school play, even though I was truly the only girl that was showing up. I was like, this makes sense. Like, like, like this is the lead. Why, why are, why don't Fair. the girls right. want the lead? Yeah. yeah, totally. Totally. I think some people m- might have felt 
constrained by their perception of self. And like, I just didn't, you know, like I was always being Charlie Chaplin for Halloween when everybody else was being gem. Like I just was having a different experience. Were your parents supportive of that? They were actually, which is pretty amazing given that like, it's not like other kids. It certainly isn't the kind of conversation we have about around something like a gender non-conforming kid now, because I'm talking about the 1980s when I was sure. a kid. Um, but then also like I was just raised in a pretty homogeneous area. So it was pretty, it's pretty cool looking back on it that my parents were like into me being myself. And now kind of even your, I don't want to say difficulty, but I think there is a lot of like so much nuance with people and their expression as well as their sexuality. You know, you're so recognizable in the queer community. I mean, you're kind of like, whether or not you wanted to or not, you've become this beacon, this face of just this very recognizable. When I say gay woman, I'm just kind of using what I think in colloquial terms people would say. Do you feel pressure to like get it all right? Do you feel this pressure to represent the queer community, especially on your podcast, in just being perfect all the time. Because I feel like Liz and I get mm. it wrong a lot. Um, and it's a learning experience for both of us. And our intentions are always good, but we're always learning on this. Do you find it to be the same case? Well, I do think that sometimes I put pressure on myself to be a little more fully cooked than I am, you know, <laughs> but that's like across the board. I'm very hard on myself. So like, I just mean, you know, when I start something, I like expect mastery. What an yeah. annoying way to be. Um, and I think that's true of understanding myself too, you know, like I'm like, I'm like skip to the end, which is such a, such a strange way to be because that's actually death. You know what I mean? Like that's the end. So I don't know, I don't know why my obsession is the end, but that's really, you know, that's something that I, um, have to work against. Yeah. I was talking to my therapist this morning and, uh, you know, we discovered we made like a breakthrough or something and something that I said, you Ooh, know, I'm like, I'm like first of all, Darren, just take a, take a beat. I am yeah. always very pro. I, I live in LA, Cameron, so I'm yeah. like pro everything. We're very pro therapy on this podcast, but that a breakthrough, don't belittle that Darren. I'm here for that. I'm excited hey, well, about that. Just, I'm, I'm excited too, but just to Cameron's point sometimes, because like, if I make a mistake, like no one's going to be harder on me than me. And I know that like my friends don't punish me enough because they know that I'm going to freak out. And so when we made this sort of breakthrough, when I was like acknowledging something, you know, some like abandonment, whatever, I immediately go, I was like, well, how do I fix this? I was like, Suzanne, like, what, like I want to get to the end already. And she's like, you need to sit with it for a little bit. She's like, you need to sit with the uncomfortableness of it. And it's just so, it's just in the same way that you are too. It's just kind of like, I wanted to get to like Z already, you know, and then, but no growth happens. Like that's death. Like when I'm not worried about my own inner psychology, like I have, I have definitely died on this, on this. And so I kind of understand. And I think there's a lot of beauty in the process of this. And I was reading, you mentioned gender fluid and on your Wikipedia, unsure if you're aware, it says that you came out as gender fluid. So it actually oh, says this as a that's statement. That's actually I, so nice. I, I said this to Liz. Smile. Yeah, no, it's good. And <laughs> it was like, Cameron came out as gender fluid. And I'm wondering for you, given your, from the eighties to 2021, when you look back, probably being a little bit more fully cooked now than you had been previously, when you think about your gender fluidity, is it, was it an active transition for you? Was it more passive over time? Had you always been thinking about it? 
I just think I've always been the same way. So I've always sort of identified as like, or I mean, even even pre words, like a dandy, like like do you know what that? It's like yes. a it's like an effeminate yeah. man. Like when I was a kid, <laughs> I was like obsessed with Robin Hood. Obsessed with Robin oh my Hood. God, I was like me whittling too. my own. Were you? <laughs> okay, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. She was whittling. I she was actually <laughs> don't think, and I'm not trying to cut you off because this dandy journey is yeah. what I'm really here for. But don't you guys both agree that no one talks about that Disney movie like as they should? I remember yeah. like the moment when they're in kind of the like beautiful, like open pasture and like all the lightning bugs. Do you guys, I vividly remember. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I just like. That's a gay movie for sure. <laughs> sorry. Oh God. I don't no, think anyone talks about it enough. Yeah. 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 So like I loved that Robin Hood and I also loved like the Errol Flynn, like yeah. live action stuff. Oh yeah. Like, Hell yeah. Because, you know, again, it's, and then, and then it's like that became replaced eventually by like people like David Bowie, you know, like I like really have an affinity for, for Bowie and Prince or, you know, like when I think about even Harry Styles now, maybe like a younger generation. That is truly, thank you, because that is truly where I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually, that is where I'm going to understand how I'm supposed to dress. Because (laughs) now that pants are supposed to be high-waisted and like a baggier look, when I first started trying on new pants, you know, like how on TikTok people will be humiliating you if you're not wearing new pants, you have to wear new pants Guess what, guess what I'm wearing right now? Oh, I can't see my new pants. Side, I got a I got my side pants. camera. The, the zoomers just, aren't liking me. They're not liking me. Also, I think well, I just threw out my back, but I hope you guys enjoyed that. I want to die. That's so fun. But in trying to understand like, okay, well, how am I supposed to do this? It's like, I couldn't figure it out because everything looked like adventures and babysit. It looked like the like hot girl from growing up. And I was like, I don't get how I'm supposed to wear. Anyway, Harry Styles, what he's doing with his pants. I've like been like okay I'll dress like my Italian grandfather like that's because he was like a dandy anyway I just whatever so I just say all this to say in the last bunch of years like say the last decade there's been this really big awareness because I don't know that I don't know you know statistically how much things have changed but for anybody that's like on the masculine of of center scale there's a lot more identifying as like non-binary and then there also is a lot more identifying as like transmasculine that is at least visible. Like, even though we, you know, I don't know that we know the numbers have changed, but there's a different visibility. So I think for me, for a minute, I thought like, do I just not know myself? And like, I am in this, you know, in, am I this kind of person? And do I need to make some changes that like, you know, hormones or are there some like surgeries that I need to have? Like, what is it that's supposed to be the fullness of my expression? And anyway, it's just felt like a little bit of a relief to think like, Maybe that's not what's going on for me, you know, because I think watching a lot of people find themselves and feel really confident, I felt a little bit for a minute, like almost left behind where I was like, wait, is this my team? Like, which team am I at? Where's my team? You know, anyway, so that's the, the like finding this term gender fluidity, like seeing more of what that looks like. It's just been a real relief for me. I know relief looks different for other people. 
But for me, it's just been like a nice thing where it's like, oh, this is what I've always been doing. It's a breakthrough in a lot of ways. What a long answer. No, that was discounted. That was perfect. We really went on a journey and I appreciate it. So uh, question. I know, Darren, you kind of hit on this earlier about how you personally have evolved or, you know, kind of come into what you always felt over the last, you know, however many years you know, you have, and she also mentioned you've kind of been a pillar within the queer community, especially in the queer entertainment community. Definitely. Have you seen queer comedy and kind of the scene change or not change? And if you have, like, is it for the better? Is it for the good? Do we still have places to go? I, I just think like, you know, we talk a lot about on the show how language continuously keeps evolving, which I actually think is great because I think we have more words to express how we feel and more vocabulary and, and also teachable moments. But have you seen kind of queer comedy scene evolve or not evolve? Yeah. I mean, so like when I started doing comedy 20 years ago, <laughs> wild <laughs> folks who like had started as out performers were not in the mainstream. So like anybody from like Kate Clinton to like, even like Leah Delaria at the time were sort of relegated to a different glass ceiling in terms of like where, like what, what opportunities exist for you. And then there were the like mega famous people who secured a little bit of positioning and then came out like Ellen or Wanda Sykes or Rosie O'Donnell. So there's like these mega famous people who are out and it's a big deal. And there's magazine articles about it. Then there's like these folks who maybe couldn't have seen success in the same way. And there wasn't really that I could see much that was any closer to where I was. Like I was already out when I started doing comedy And so I would have been in that group of people where the opportunities would have been more limited, but it was like a new time. I got my job, my first job professionally doing comedy the same week that Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. And that's where I lived at the time. So I graduated from college that week. I got my first job in comedy professionally. And I also watched the first same-sex couples emerge from City Hall married the same week. And I think because of that, it's like my, I was able to start in the mainstream and the glass ceiling was just sort of like, it's like actually glass is liquid. (laughs) It was like just sort of wavering and it has stayed that way throughout my career. So like, I don't think that I have every opportunity that a straight cis dude who does comedy has had, but I also think that I have been able to be part of the mainstream in the way that generations prior to like even the exact year that I started, we're not able to. So anybody who kind of like started after me, they were starting in a new world in this country. And it's like wild that that is true, but it really is. You know, even somebody like generations ahead of me, like, I mean, Margaret Cho was out as queer and like, she's been an amazing pillar, you know, Tig eventually, because that was like 10 years later, you know, Uh, had a lot of national exposure and then, you know, now is like a superstar, but I just mean in terms of like names I could, you know, look to like who's doing this and what does it look like? It was very, you know, it's like at an open mic being like, I guess I'll be Ellen, like an already famous, super successful person. 
person. Like there were, there wasn't really anybody to look to. And I think that has really changed just the idea of like who you could be, what it could look like, what outfits you could wear, who you could publicly date, who you could privately date, you know, like all of that, what could, what you could talk about on stage, all of that has changed so much, all of it. And for the, and for the better, I think, I mean, I do think the world gets better slowly, but surely. And for you, the glass ceiling thing, or it being kind of this liquid, do you think that had a lot to do with you being a woman, a gay woman? Like, do you feel like gay men who were kind of coming out in the same time that you were, were struggling with the same things that you were also struggling with? Or do you think it was really more female centric about that? Because people judge women a lot more than they judge men. Well, I mean, I started in Chicago and there weren't a ton of gay dudes that were in my generation. There were actually also not a lot of queer. There was like nobody else in my generation that was a queer person. And stand-up sort of runs in like classes. But I definitely have watched people after me. I don't know. I mean, I think the answer is like, it's like anything where there are layers of marginalization. So like race always matters. Of course, gender matters. Of course, sex matters. Of course, sexuality matters. Of course, like you know, body size matters, like literally everything. There's just like that unoffensive reaches everybody. And I'm putting that in quotes, like straight cis dude, who's also a white person like that guy. It's, I don't know that everybody else is in competition for who's had it worse. I think we can just agree that that guy's had it the best. hundred <laughs> percent. He's in every sitcom. There's 12 right. of him cast right. in every commercial. And they're not that funny. No. And they all look the same. Or interesting. So the rest of us are back there like fighting, trying to figure out who's had it worse. Well, that guy is just like, I'm in everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I often, I often wonder, Liz and I talk about this, how it's like, I know a lot of women or people who identify as women who are always like, like we had a, we were talking to a real housewife the other day and she's like, I feel like I'm just internally a gay man. And I was like, I don't know any man that would say internally they feel like a lesbian. Like I just like lesbians are always in this, this other category. Like when we lean into stereotypes, like gay men are fabulous and stylish and Ooh, they're interior designers. And I trust them. It's like, and then there's lesbians and there's no like, fabulous equivalent for us. And I always kind of harped on that because there seems to be a lot of even internally, like, yeah, I think we can all agree that we all are uh, struggling in comparison to maybe the cis gender white male. But I also think within our community, there's a lot of nuance and misogyny that can also go on on the other side of it. Have you experienced that? Do you not agree with that? Or why do you think that is? Oh, I mean, well, I will just say like in my human life, like not my work life, gay dudes are not really a part of my community. And I, it's not like a chosen thing, but it's really just like the queer community that I am a part of, which is like a sort of East side Los Angeles, like Amen. gender fuckage and weird haircuts and outfits. Like there are a lot of maybe like femmes in that group or like trans folks that are on any part of the spectrum. There's a lot of different, it's not just, I guess what I'm saying is it's not just cis women. There's like a big giant group of people, but I think cis gay dudes are not here. I think those people are in West Hollywood or when I lived in Chicago, it's like Boys Town and Andersonville. Or if you go to New York, it's like Chelsea Kitchen or Chelsea and then Brooklyn or whatever. It's like true everywhere. And I, I think some of that is like, Yeah. I mean, right. Of course, like cis men don't need us. They have that privilege going on. So 
Interesting. That's what I've always kind of said. I don't know. It's interesting when I, you put it in better terms than I Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. So I have a very lovely, lovely, who I obviously love gay brother. We're only like 14 months apart. So we're basically like queer twins, Irish twins, Irish queer twins, literally and figuratively. And I always say to him, I'm like, you guys, his group of gay, white, cis men who are also actually in the army, which is a whole nother conversation. But I'm like, you guys are really fucking misogynistic. He's like, no, we're not. And I said, here's why I believe that and how I feel that is you have like, no, you just said it perfectly, Cameron. Like you have no like use for us, right? Like you, you don't want to fuck us. So you're not, (laughs) you're not like undercutty trying to get me to like you, like, you know, whatever it is, like, I'm typically not getting you a job. So like there's, and I don't mean it in this like angry way, because I actually do happen to have quite a few gay cis friends that I love dearly, but I do have to challenge them sometimes where I'm like, you're being really misogynistic and you're not thinking about the female identifying people within the LGBTQ community you might say you are, but I don't feel that way. So I agree. It's, it's, it's interesting. I think there are other things that like also factor in here because as I was even thinking about, it, I'm like, well, there are some dudes that are part of my community. And a lot of that is also race. So like, uh, cause also my spouse has like a ton of cis gay dude friends, which is so different than mine, you know, and she is a mixed race person. And I think that like, just worth pointing out that I think also whiteness yeah. causes like an extra separate where there's like this, there's like the All group the of layers. people that can like still make the same amount of money, no matter, even though they're gay. And like, that is a very <laughs> specific descri- description with like a bunch of different things. And it's, yeah, it's like cis white and also like, you know, stuff like body type or mannerism matters, right? Like being masculine enough that people can take you seriously or being feminine enough that you can package it in like a pithy way. And people are like, oh, it's, this is my friend. You know, like, I don't think that that's, that might not feel totally like freedom. I wonder, you know, if that doesn't feel like it has its own restrictions because there's like a real need to fall within certain parameters and stay there. I think that's a really smart point and well said. And I think that that sometimes can go either over- overlooked or underlooked uh, in just the nuances of how we talk about it. I actually want to switch to your to your comedy a little bit here, because is there and I, I want to get into rape jokes for all the right reasons that we should get into it because it's pretty incredible. But for you, in your mind, is there something that we can't joke about? Are there, are there off limits for you as a comedian? So I, the great news is I have a very specific answer to this, um, which is like, no, of course not. But for me, the like two things are if it's a serious topic, take it seriously. Like be good. Like yeah. the amount of pain that the topic has caused members of the audience should be <laughs> commensurate with how good your joke is. Like that's, right. I think when comics often get into trouble, it's like take on a huge, messy, destructive topic with like a shitty joke. What did you expect? Like. Why did you think you could? It's everything in the world has a weight. And as a comic, we are balancing that weight. So if you aren't good enough to do that, then don't try to tell jokes on this topic. And then the other thing is, I also happen to think that it it's like, at least within my, how I live my life is I try to talk about the personal. Like, so yeah. yes, it's like, be as good 
to be good enough to talk about this topic. But also, if this isn't personal for you, why are you talking about this? Like, to me, that's actually just like, sounds like you're deflecting from like the stuff that really is in your life. You know, you're like a dude up there talking, you know, cis dude up there talking about trans women. Literally, why? Why do you even care about this? Yeah. Why does this matter to you? Like what, like, is this what you think about right before you drift off to sleep or before you <laughs> stay awake, stressed, like all night flipping in your, this is what, you, this is what's on your mind. Somebody else. What's wrong with you? Like get into your own shit, you know, God, comedy, should be us. comedy should be authentic to the person who is delivering the comedy. I think so. I think it's, I think it's just like laziness. It's well, or maybe a lack of self-conception, you know, like if you're somebody who has a lot of privilege, maybe you don't even conceive of having a self because everybody's yesing your experience. So you're like, this is what the world is like. And it's like, no, this is what your world is like. Right. So know that and talk about things that way. I won't lie. When I first saw rape jokes, for me as a survivor, I'm like, like, you know, at anything, but it's just triggering. But then in kind of, I would say, I don't know how many seconds, let's call it three and a half. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, all right, fine. Fuck it. I'm actually glad somebody's putting that word out there and talking about it. And obviously you did the very honorable thing of raising a shit ton of money for rain, but which is amazing. Yeah. Talk me through the name and the decision to do the very specific choice to do that. And I would love to know the other reactions you've gotten from folks like me who have seen rape jokes and know about it. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for disclosing. And I'm sorry that happened to you. No, it's okay. I feel like I'm at a point in my life where if I keep saying it and keep talking about it, it loses its power. Therapeutic in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like, fuck it. Like, I'm not going to hide this shit because it was so ingrained in me to hide, 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 hide because because of what you talked about. We we talked about in the beginning because it's making fucking other people uncomfortable. Right. Well, fuck you. (laughs) I'm the most uncomfortable. So thank you for that. But yeah, continue. Well, what you just said, I mean, that's. Yeah. Well, for me, the reason, yeah, it was very deliberate to title the special that way. And I really just wanted to be the number one Google result. If you Google rape jokes, because so often it has (laughs) been, I love it so much. (laughs) So good. (laughs) So often it is like a dude who in my experience had been prior to making this. So I conceived of the idea making this special titling this after Donald Trump was elected president, because when I watched him debate Hillary Clinton, and I don't care how you feel about Hillary, the way that he was menacing her on stage, I absolutely recognized in that things that I have experienced in my own life and from my own experience with sexual assault. And it was harrowing to watch that and have, and realize that some people could be having a different experience of watching that. Like, not recognizing that like to me or, or not caring, you know, like recognizing it, not caring it. So, you know, that's when I was like, I'm just like thinking, what can I do? I already did the stuff to try to get the other person elected. Is there, you know, what's the thing I can do with my art, but also, you know, in my years prior, this is like a perennial debate, rape jokes. This is a little bit less like hot button right now, but it'll come back again. It always comes back again. And it's always like some dude with like a shitty joke, it doesn't matter. 
And then he's like, makes it literally, he's on like MSNBC or something. And then there's like (laughs) a woman who's a commentator and like, God bless her. And she's like put in this terrible position to have to be like, like, first of all, just the idea that we are positioning it as if men feel one way about this issue and women feel another is so fucked up. Fucked up. Fucked and up. also that it is never a comic and another comic. Like Lindy West did a bunch of these interviews and like, God bless Lindy and I love her work. Also, like she shouldn't be like taking the hit for this. If you're going to book like some dude comic, like book a different comic who has a different feeling. It'd be so amazing also if it happened to be a man. But I, for me, I just felt like the problem isn't that isn't talking about sexual assault. That's not the problem. The problem is that like you demean and belittle the experience of survivors, assuming that there aren't people in the audience who've had that experience, which statistically is impossible. There are people in every audience and also assuming there aren't people on the fucking bill with you who've had that experience. I ran a show for years here in LA and for years in Chicago. If I'm on the bill with you, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. So you're telling your stupid fucking joke. And then I have to come on stage after you and do my material either spend my time addressing the dumb shit you just said, or just like feel bad and suck it up. And I just felt like we deserved a place in the conversation and that talking about sexual assault and like having that be the subject of the special would be a very different thing than defending a like first amendment right to say something stupid. Yeah. Nobody's censoring you. Right. We're just telling you this is a bad joke. Like there's a t- <laughs> Very big difference. Right. Like, and and I think to your point, even when I, when I (laughs) asked the question, it's like, are there things that you wouldn't joke about? You know, I, I, what I gathered from you was like, well, no, like, you know, you, as long as the joke is funny and with the right intent behind it, I think it's okay to laugh. I think it's, I think it's as long as the joke is good, but I, I do think if it's not coming from an authentic place or coming from a place of belittling other people or making all these assumptions about who's in the crowd and everyone's seeing in your own point of view, it loses its, if it had any cachet to begin with, it loses all of it after that. And it's important. Yeah. Also like people will always laugh at those jokes because like there will always be a market for that, you know, for like lowest common denominator stuff like that. Like, of course that will always be here again. It's like, that's not what I'm trying to do with my life. And I actually think it's kind of sad if that's what somebody is trying to do with their life. I, that will never stop. And I do judge you, those people. (laughs) As you should, <laughs> as, as you should, those people fucking suck. I hate those fucking people, but seriously, what you did with rape jokes, I think it was just brilliant. And, uh, Liz and I don't want to let those compliments kind of go by guy the wayside. Cause I, I really do think it was so just impactful for a lot of people, whether or not they consider themselves survivors or victims or people who haven't, um, who have been lucky enough not to experience sexual assault. I also think you touched a lot of people's lives there. And, uh, certainly for me, you definitely have. So thank you for, and obviously for a great cause like rain, but it just, the whole thing was just beautiful. Um, and you did a really good job with it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I will You're welcome. become uncomfortable now. Yeah, okay, good. That's what we want. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. We need to get a little history lesson in here, Liz. And we and I are. We need you to have visuals here, Cameron. This yeah, is, this okay, is the, I'm really this excited. This is the works here. This is our inner workings. Yeah, go ahead, Liz. So we're gonna play a little game called Who Dis, and the reason why we are gonna play this, which I'm pretty sure you're going to score a hundred out of a hundred, is because we actually have a lot of straight 
listeners to this show. I think. Okay, great. Which is like awesome. My mom. Yes. Hi, Hello. Darren's mom. Yes. Hi, mom. Um, <laughs> no, Cameron, Cameron, I say this to Liz every week, but you have no idea what it's like when my mom's like, listen to you on scissoring this week. And I'm like, oh no, we got to change the name of the show. I don't want to oh, say this. This is I do know what that's like. Oh, uh, I'm sure you do. I'm I do sure know what that's do. like. I'm sure you do. <laughs> but no, the reason Mental why we want to do this is because again, we, I think we have this like interesting niche to be honest with you where obviously Darren has worked for Andy Cohen for a million years and is the reality TV guru. I only watch Temptation Island and RuPaul's Drag Race. So other than that, reality TV is lost on me. I've worked in and out of entertainment for a very long time, but we kind of have like a lot of reality TV and TV hardcore listeners that are straight oh and we God. love it. Oh and we love God. the fact that they listen the, to us the and they're like, uh-huh. they're the best. Yes, they're the we best. are, I think Darren and I are like entry level gay for a yeah. lot of people. We're palatable gay. We're palatable. Darren like used to, to live on the Upper East Side. Like we are palatable gays. And so yes. I think, <laughs> you know, for me, they're like, ooh, like, are you, are you not? Like, oh, is this a phase? I'm like, maybe, you know, anyway. So let's play a little game for the listeners, an educational moment. Listen, if you don't know who any of these people are, it's okay. Cause I'm going to tell you anyway, are you ready to play? And no shame. I, I, yes. Do you know who this person is? Who the fuck is that? This is <laughs> Okay, well this is um James Baldwin who is a very this is famous so humiliated. No, this no, is it's it, fine. It's, it's fine. Who is a it's famous fine. No, it's not fine. This is not fine. Novelist and playwright. Um you guys might know him. He's written uh, things like If Beale Street Could Talk and Notes of a Native Son and Giovanni's Son and he very famously made a lot of his prota- protagonists African American and queer. Okay, it gets easier. It gets it gets easier. We made I don't a little, think so. No, it does. It does. It does. Do you know who this? Who this? Who this? Who this? Who this dis? is a person from a baking show. Yes, <laughs> this is. Look, you guys. This is oh, no. this, no, this, this is, is Sue Perkins. You got the job title right, basically. She's an English comedian, broadcaster, presenter, actress, and writer, best known as the original presenter on the Great British Bake Off. So. I'm giving Cameron a one point there in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, That's, I give it back to you. <laughs> okay, do you know who this is? That is Marsha P. Johnson. Amazing. Marsha P. Johnson is a... What's going on with me? (laughs) Don't worry. It's going to get good. Marsha P. Johnson, for the listeners, you should all know who this is, is an activist from New York, one of the founding members of the Gay Liberation Front, co-funded the radical activist group Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, also known as STAR, and was the mayor of Christopher Street uh, due to being so welcoming to everyone in Greenwich Village. Okay, who is this? Leslie Jordan. Okay, see, you're so good at this, Leslie Jordan. I mean, we all know who Leslie Jordan is, hearts alive. <laughs> Beverly, Leslie, Will and Grace. I mean, come on, American Horror Story. Watch his Instagrams. They're fucking fantastic. Okay, last but not least, I feel like you will know this one. Who is this? 
Oh, that's Leah Delaria. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Leah Delaria, who I keep seeing at the dog park, as the listeners know, is the self-described Lord of the Lesbians, uh, a comedian, a jazz singer. I saw her on the dance floor at Giorgio's a couple years ago. She may or may not have hit on me. She is television's go-to bush for the last 20 she, years. She was Boo in Orange is the New Black. And just came out with a fantastic documentary that's not mentioned, Liz, that I want to say because I met her last week at this yep. documentary thing uh, called The Lesbian Bar Project, which talks about uh, basically how we have really whittled down all the lesbian bars across the nation. And it's just been terrible. So honestly, you did a really good job. You did a pretty good job. No, this is so I can't believe I don't know what James Baldwin looks like. I'm not sure I did. Do you know what, though? I do think that that book is called Giovanni's Room, right? What did I say? Son. Giovanni's son. Oh, I said, oh, it is. It's Giovanni's room. Sorry, my notes. So oh, you God. get the point because you, you get corrected. the point back. I don't get, get the, the point. point. <laughs> I don't get the point. That's so embarrassing. Cameron, it was an honor getting to talk to you for this past hour. You are fucking fantastic. I think we can, we think Liz and I both agree as we've had smiles on our face this entire hour. You were absolutely lovely. It was such a great conversation. Where can people buy her book for sure? But where can people follow you, watch her oh, comedy? Oh, this is wild. I have two live shows this summer. I've not performed live in such a long minute. If you live in Los Angeles, I will be at Dynasty Typewriter on July 18th. Beautiful. Oh my God. Amazing. If you live in New York, I, I will do. be at... The Bell House. Oh, on love it. August 26th. Look, we haven't been out in the world. Us? Not at all. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I can't believe the like two live shows. Usually it's like, it's like months and months of touring. Two. Dose. <laughs> yeah, but I like that because it's concentrating it's the curated. audience. And it is curated. And Darren is in New York. I'm here in LA. Our audience is pretty split. So like. That's how I picked it. I, I know we know guys. we didn't want to say, but we knew that, you know, um, I, and I, everyone I, should listen yeah. to query, which Ugh. is your incredible podcast, which absolutely. If you're listening to this and not that, like then something's wrong, then something is incorrect. Number so when you two are both total sweethearts, and this is the final thing that I will say that was like such a joy is that everybody's little zoom square looks amazing. But there is something that is like so extra amazing about what's going on behind Liz versus what's going on behind Darren. Because it's definitely like, I do like I for sure know which person lives in LA and which person lives in New York. As Darren's like, this is like the largest possible bed that I can fit here. And it's like a twin and a half. You Wait, know? No, and she's like, in like I a child's it. bedroom, I think. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not it. in like, my apartment. I'm not in my apartment, to be fair. Okay. I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a, a house that we rented upstate. All right. Oh my God. All right. Oh, well that changes everything for a minute. I just thought we were like really seeing the truth of the thing. Like behind Liz is like a full vignette. There's like actually somebody sunning. Like, it's just like, if you removed the wall behind that would be an additional person sunning. Like, it's just like a, (laughs) all right, guys, I'm going to go burn this house down. All right. All right. So you guys can, you guys can follow us at SIAT podcast. Happy Pride Month. You can follow Darren at Carpe Darren. You can follow me at Listen to Liz. And Cameron, it seriously was a pleasure. I'm never staying up in Cold Spring ever again, but thank you guys so much. This is no, this is the wrong message. Goodbye. <laughs> and great and great job, everyone. Thank you. 
Scissoring Isn't a Thing is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Begas. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SIAT Podcast. See you next Tuesday.